the preaching of God's Word then is in Luke chapter 18 and verses 28 through 30. This is, as you'll remember, just after the young ruler comes and oh, what a question it is, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ challenges him, though unknown to him from the beginning. Don't you know that none is good but God? And he's challenging this man's notion of what is good and ultimately making him to see that his own outward goodness is infinitely beneath the great goodness of God. And as he's sought out as a wise and skillful physician and placed his pinpoint accuracy upon this display of the man's remaining rebellion, remember that it's said in verse 23 that when he that is the ruler heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Christ then says, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? The people, the disciples say, Who can be saved? In verse 27, God acknowledges that with men it's impossible, but not with God. Then we pick up our text, verses 28 through 30. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily, I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. These three verses for our consideration. And again, remembering the context, the sadness and grief that even Christ experiences When he sees this man is sorrowful, a parallel gospel speaks of Christ being filled with sorrow as he looked upon this man because he sees that cleaving unto this world in the man. And it's as we sang in God's providence in Psalm 81, God coming saying, open your mouth wide, I'll fill it. And yet we see this man clenching his teeth and turning from the Lord and Christ as it were commenting on this very thing. It is a grievous thing to see one cleave to his earthly loves and in doing so lose out on that eternal kingdom. Well, notice what it evokes in hearing that it's impossible with men but possible with God. It's Peter who speaks up and often, as it were, the mouthpiece of the disciples. He says, lo, that is, behold, look, consider this. We have left all and followed thee. That word left all actually is we've let it go. We've cast it from us. We've released it. We were holding on to it, but we've opened our hand and we've let it go. We've let what go? Everything. For what end? To follow you. Notice Christ's response. He uses a solemn word that's so frequent in the Scriptures and can be misunderstood by us. Verily, truly, I'm saying this, pay attention to my words. There's no man that hath left, that has let go of house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Notice this play on the words. Peter says, we've let go of everything. We've released it. Children, you know what it is to hold on to something. Perhaps you've had those moments where you're holding on to a toy that you want and someone else wants it and you're holding on and there's tension between you and you won't let it go. And then your mom or dad say, okay, let it go. Give it to me. You let it go and now it's taken from your hand. But notice what Christ says. Whoever lets go of everything for my sake, he says, will receive. Do you hear that word? Verse 30. That empty hand that's let go of everything will receive, notice the word, manifold more. Not just in the life to come, but in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. In essence, what Christ is saying is, no one who lets go of all this world will ever come out on the short side. Everyone who lets go of everything in this world, from riches to pleasures to lusts to the idolatry of other things, all of those things let go 
will leave no man the loser before Christ if it is that he's letting it go in order to receive what Christ holds forth. And remember this word, receive, has been prominent throughout this chapter. And so it is that Christ said earlier in verse 17, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. That is, the image is one having their hands open saying, you've promised, I trust you to give. And so what's being said is, we must first let go of this world and the things of this world in order to receive what God is giving. Now, of course, this doesn't just mean physical, tangible, holding on to objects, but it's also speaking of our heart's affections. They're being bound to certain things. I want this, and though it's not tangible, I'm still got my own honor, my own way, my own will. I want that. Often, brethren, the tangible things we hold on to are but the outward display of a heart that is clenching this world in various ways. And not always bad things. Notice what Christ says. There's no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children. Which one of those things is sinful? Parents aren't sinful. That's what God has given. Children aren't sinful. Wives aren't sinful. Having a house isn't sinful. But what he's getting at is, when the heart so lays hold of those things, as to say, this is the life I want. This is the life I must have. And if I don't have it, I'm not going to follow Christ. Christ says, the one who lets all of those things go and say, Lord, it's Yours to do with. You use it. You take it. You order it. But the one thing that I desire, O Lord, is to have the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says that one will find in this life blessings and in the life to come, life everlasting. In other words, as we look at this, we see that the one who loses all that this temporary world has to offer for Christ's sake gains both in this life and in the life to come by Christ. Well, consider then two things for us this morning. Firstly, leaving all, releasing all, and secondly, gaining more. Notice those words. Leaving all and yet gaining more. How often is it the case that you let go of something in order to gain more? Well, I imagine we do that with little measurements of things. We see, well, I'll be one who benefits if I let go of this little thing, I'll gain more. You think of the idea of investing. I'll invest a little bit of money here. I'm willing to let go of that in order to gain more dividends on the back end. The world functions this way. We think of that. I'm willing to give up some things in order to gain more things. But Christ is saying, the one who gives up everything will not be the loser. When it is done for my sake, he will be the gainer. Well, notice then firstly, leaving all. Well, what is left? Notice Peter says, lo, we have left all. Now, brethren, remember, Christ has already made this point when He says, if you would be My disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Me. So a disciple is one who says to everything, you're not Mine anymore. And He even says to the mirror's image and the heart within that image you're not guiding me anymore. This life is not my Lord. This heart is not my Lord. This mind is not my Lord. This world is not my Lord. What is being left? Peter says it so simply. We have left all. It was in our power in this world to retain, and we saw the pearl of great price We saw the treasure hidden in the field and we've let go of everything. We've sold everything that we could buy the field and have that treasure. This is what we've left. Everything. Brethren, that's a 
very comprehensive statement that we in one sense very clearly and deliberately measure everything in this world and we say, this is not going to guide me, that's not going to guide me, this isn't going to govern me, none of this. But we also include a finger at ourselves and say, I'm not going to guide me. I'm leaving everything. Because in fact, these things that are mentioned are various expressions of our own comforts and desires. Think of this for a moment. A child who doesn't have a father or mother is in a difficult place. To be an orphan is to be exposed to all manner of problems. And yet, Christ says, there's not a man who's left parents. Parents are good things. And yet, they can become a stumbling block if it is that the parents who supply comforts and provisions for our lives are actually hindering us from following Christ. We know of stories, of course, some personal, some more public, of those who have converted to Christ Jesus in certain nations, even in this land, of course, as well. But in some nations, like Muslim nations, a young person will be converted to Christ, and if they are found out having converted to Christ, they'll not just get sort of a bad treatment in some general words, but they may be beaten. They may be put to death. And so when Christ says there's not a man who's left parents, He's not just saying a casual indifference as is so common in this world to parental authority, but rather parents who would oppose our following Christ. Christ is saying the one who says, though I love my parents, though I desire good for my parents, yet I'm willing to leave them in order to follow Christ. And before that, He uses the word house. Think of how comfortable it is to have a place to rest. Remember when one came to Christ and said, I'll follow you, and Christ says, listen, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but I, the Son of Man, I have not a place to lay my head. Every night that comes, you have a bed. Every night that comes, you know where you're going to sleep. And even if it is that some emergency takes you up, In our land, there are hospitals and other things where there are beds for you to lie in. And Christ said, listen, I don't have a house. I don't have a home. So what's being said here is this notion of this stable comfort. I'm willing to forsake the stable comforts that are good in this life in order to suffer for the sake of Christ if needs be. We've left all, says Peter. Generally, yes, all. But notice as we're looking at this, It includes those good things, however, which may stand as obstacles for our following of Christ. Parents or brethren, many in this room will know what it is to have brothers or sisters, cousins and others, aunts and uncles who would ridicule your following of Christ. And sometimes there have been instances where one who has been Uh, considering the following of Christ, it has an influential brother or sister or aunt or uncle or parent for that matter with wealth and realizes if I follow Christ, I lose out on all of this. Or if I follow Christ, this relationship which has been so intimate and so comfortable and so good will suffer. Do you realize this for a moment? That in following Christ... There is the crisis that will come to each of us in various ways. Will I follow Christ though He leads me into the fire? Will I follow Christ though He says, do you see that dark valley of the shadow of death? That's our next move. We're going there. But Christ, if I go there, my brother will be against me. My parents will be against me. I'll lose out on my job, on my house, on my comfort. But notice Christ says more. Or wife. Do you know that in the experience of humankind, the most intimate relationship is supposed to be the marriage? Now, in our broken world, of course, we realize that this is not always realized in our experience. But brethren, remember the way that the Lord established marriage. That a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. 
And the wife is to submit herself unto her own husband as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. There was one thing in the opening scene of the Bible at creation that was said to be not good. And what was it? It was, it's not good that man should be alone. And so God made an help meet for Adam. A help suitable for Adam. Here, what is being said is not the careless and casual, you know, separating and divorcing that's so common in our day. But rather, when the wife is saying, if you follow Christ, let's be clear what you're not going to get. You're not going to get my support. You're not going to get meals from me. You're not going to get my intimacy. You're not going to get my kindness and my uh, uh, relationship. You're going to be the loser in this. Brethren, obviously, it's not only wives, but husbands who are often obstacles as well. We know of situations in church history, for instance, where men were those who were saying, I need to follow Christ, but their wife was opposed. We know the opposite as well, where the wife was to follow Christ, and yet the husband was opposed. The point is that most intimate relationship known to man can become one of the biggest stumbling blocks in our following to Christ when the one or the other is provoking or opposing our steadfast following to Christ. Oh, God. you look at this next word, children. For the sane person, a child is seen instantly as a great provision. And yet parents are able to testify there are times when their children are the sources of their worst and most immeasurable anguish. And when it is that that's for the sake of Christ, that our children stand opposed to Christ, and our natural affinity and affection for our children is now challenged by this, will I cater to their lusts? Will I compromise my witness? Will I do these things? And think of this. You see this in mothers' faces. Mothers will smile as they see their children having a good time. Fathers will have the same sense of delight as they uh, have this feeling of affection for their children. There is a bond between parents and children that is deep and whatever the world thinks of it or not is real. And so when a parent, an adult who has children, is now considering following Christ and the children stand opposed, that's not a little thing. And so Christ is saying, look at all of these most intimate things. Set aside all that is superfluous. Set aside all the skin-deep, thin veneer that the world treasures. Let's look at the most intimate and weighty things in this world. Your stable home, your closest relationships, all of those things, Peter's saying, is what I've left. And not just I, but all of the disciples. We've left that. This doesn't mean that Peter... Um, and the other disciples divorced their wives, abandoned their children, and turned away from their parents in some hypocritical way. But what's being said is, we've counted, we've measured it, we've deliberately considered and said, none of these things are going to impede or hinder my following of Christ Jesus. Remember what Christ has said. Consider the cost. In our day of sort of hands-free discipleship, there's this thought. I remember a billboard or a church sign that said, it's better to have started and failed than never to have started at all. And the truth is, that is biblically wrong. It's not better to start and fail. Christ actually says explicitly, it's better to consider the cost, to count it well, to consider that in these steps that are before you, there will be experiences that will feel as the cross of anguish upon your body and soul. And you will be tempted at that time to lean into your own understanding, to turn aside, to compromise, and to say, it's not worth it. And Christ says, it would have been better not to have started than to have started and to have compromised in that day. Brethren, there are those in this room, all of us in various ways, 
who have different degrees of trials, some tremendously heavy, some lighter, some that are ongoing for weeks and months, some that have only begun, some that are around the corner. And whereas this message would not be welcomed in the prosperity world that surrounds us today, the message of Christ is clear. The one who follows me in no lack of clarity must first die to himself. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So when Peter says, look, We've left all. He's not saying we're like super disciples. You know, he's not patting himself on the back saying, you know, these little guys that don't know what they're doing. He's actually in some sense of deep struggle of soul saying, well, we've done that. And there's this sense of expectation. So what now? What now is to come? We've left all. We've just seen this man come. And he's cried out, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we heard your word. And he went away sad. We saw it with our eyes. Well, we've left all. We don't have much right now. What's now going to become of us? Well, before we get to that, notice in this, what is left in leaving all? Notice then, why it's left. Why is this all left? Well, there are two explicit things stated in this text. You'll see it in verse 29. Christ says, whoever does this for the kingdom of God's sake. So it's not for financial gain. It's not for the escaping of torment and trial. You know, it's not in our own world where, for instance, it's not like Christ is saying, you know, whoever does this because it's easier to give those things up than not. So in our world, of course, it's lawful and right. We can be in a job that's difficult, and perhaps we have a boss or co-workers that are against us. We have every right to put in our two weeks, as it were, and to say, listen, I'm going to be searching out for something else. Why? Because I don't like these circumstances. That's fine. That's lawful, so long as it's honorably done. That's not why the disciples are leaving this. The disciples aren't saying, listen, I've got a poor house. I want a rich house. I've got a nagging wife. I want a happy wife. I've got children that are careless. I want children who are respectful. That's not what the disciples are doing. And so what is the reason is because the disciples, true disciples to this day, are those who have seen something bigger, something grander, something more beautiful, and something with greater weight and significance. What is it? It's the kingdom of God. Remember that Christ went forth preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what is that word gospel? Children, do you remember the word gospel? We hear that word and it's so frequently stated and so frequently recited and so frequently heard. But what is it? Well, the gospel is simply this, good news. It's good news. Now think of that expression as earlier in Lucas said, Christ went forth preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Of God. And ask yourself today if the world thinks it's good news that there's a king. Does the world think it's good news that there's one who has absolute sovereign control over everything? Does the world say, you know what I want? In all my self help books, I want to find out who's in charge over me. If I could just find that out, then I'd be happy. You can go to bookstores, look online, and look at what people are pawning after, or fawning after, what they're longing for. They're wanting ways that they can control themselves. Self-realization, self-actualization, self-this, self-that, self-help galore. Now, of course, there's needed counsel as to there are certain things that one needs to be disciplined in. We don't deny that. But that's not the fundamental need facing mankind. The fundamental need facing mankind is we've ruined ourselves. Actually, what self does is destroy. When Adam and Eve listened to themselves, they brought forth their own undoing and the undoing of all their descendants. So think of this for a moment. The world longs for this notion of self a self-made man, a self-made woman, and all of these things. But the gospel, the good news, is actually that there's one who rules over us. There's one who has come 
to provide for us. See, when we hear the word king and ruler, it's hard for us as Americans to separate the notion of tyranny and unjust taxation and all these things that sort of are the seedbed of our nation's history. But brethren, we need to realize something. That there is a king. When we think of the term Christ, Christ is the anointed king. And the gospel is a gospel of the anointed king. When we see that it's Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the king. This is fundamental. But why is it that they would leave all for this? Because though there are kings which abuse their authority in this world and are thus tyrants, true kingship is this wealth of supply and tender love and wisdom that is then exercised not only over but within and under supporting the kingdom. And so, for instance, in Isaiah 49, there's the prophetic word that kings and queens, listen to this language of the church, shall become nursing fathers and nursing mothers unto you. Now, there's a world of things we need to consider in that someday. But simply note this, that the rulers who have authority and resources are using that for the good of the people. The same is true with parents, right? Parents have authority over their children. That authority is not the tyrannical, iron-fisted, iron rod, beat them down. There are hard decisions that must be made. But the authority is actually in order to serve. And Christ our King, what has He done? Well, He doesn't just sort of effeminately, wimp-wristedly go about life and say, whatever you want, I just love you. And fairy dust here and fairy pixel there, pixels there, all of these things. Instead, what He does is He with love and force, yet with tenderness of affection, surrounds His people with the context and culture of grace and truth and life. In other words, the King comes powerfully to serve and to help and to save. Blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord. To do what? To save us. And so this One who bears absolute authority, above whom there is none higher, has come not to sit down and to say, now you guys get at it, but He's come standing up and bowing down on His knees, washing His disciples' feet, helping, serving, saving. And the disciples see this. And Christ says, that's why these are leaving those things. They're leaving the broken kingdoms of this world. They're leaving the broken world of sin and death and misery to have pardon the kingdom where God is King. Where God supplies our need. Where God surrounds us with salvation. Where God rejoices over us with seeing. Isn't that an amazing expression? We understand why we should rejoice in God with songs, but we're actually told in the Scriptures that God rejoices over us with songs. God delights in His people. And the disciples as little and hindered as their eyesight spiritually may be, have seen a little bit of that. And they say that kingdom is better than the broken kingdom of this world and everything in it. They're following Christ. They're leaving everything else behind because they see a better king and kingdom. Remember those of you who are familiar with the book of Pilgrim's Progress, Christian has this burden on his back and he reads in his book that he dwells in the city of destruction. And he says, I can't stay here anymore. What do I have to gain if I stay here? And so he's looking and being guided by evangelists, the minister, and by the book in his hand and so on, unto the cross and the empty tomb unto Christ and then from that the path of following him why is he doing that though his wife comes and says you're out of your mind though his children mock him though his friends run after him and say come back you're insane why does he press on because he knows that the city he dwells in is ruined and done for and destroyed but the world that he's pursuing is of life and grace and salvation, the kingdom of God. But notice as well why it's left. It's not 
a different thing entirely, but a different angle on the same thing. Peter says simply, we've left all and followed Thee. We're following Christ. It's not the abstract notion. It's the person being followed. We're going to follow Christ. We're saying to our own reason, no more. We're saying to our own hearts, no more. We're saying to wife, to children, to parents, to friends, to enemies, to the world, to possessions, to wealth, to pleasure, no more. We're not following you. We're following Christ. This is why they leave all. Because they've seen in Christ the truth of salvation. Do you remember when Christ is brought to the temple? He's taken up in the arms And we hear those words, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. What is the man looking at? He's looking at a baby. And he's saying, this is salvation. Jesus Christ is the Deliverer. And it's helping us see that these aren't confused or opposing notions, the kingdom of God and of Christ, but where absolute rule of God is, There is an absolute and gracious ruler who delivers us, who saves us, who has come from heaven to deliver us from our miseries. And He calls upon us to say no. To what? To the world of death and misery. As we'll see, that we may be gainers. So we leave all to follow Christ. Now notice then secondly, the gaining of more. Christ says so beautifully, whoever does this, says it negatively, there is no man that hath left all these things for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more and so on. Notice firstly those words, verse 30, manifold more. In our own language, manifold may be a word that's strange to us. We think of manifolds on engines and so on. But manifold simply means many-fold. So children, for a moment, though it is not precisely, just think of this for a moment. You have a, a piece of paper and you fold it once. It has one fold, right? If you fold it over and over and over and over and over again, you have many folds, right? Well, there's more to this word, but you have sort of a concept, an idea. It's many times over. It's not a little bit. And then notice what it's bound with. Manifold more. So there's a, a lot of much, but there are many lots of much. Children, think of this. You go to a candy store and you see you know, the taffies and the peppermints and the gummy bears and the chocolates and the chocolate-covered nuts and the fudge and all these things. And what you see is not just a lot of M&Ms or a lot of you know, pieces of gum. You see whole buckets and whole shelves of many different types of sweets and treats and candies and so on. You're seeing manifold more than what you have in your house, right? Well, this, Christ is saying, is just a little help to understand what is gained. Notice, there are two things He says. The one who leaves everything in this life to follow Me, the one who leaves everything in this life to pursue Me, shall gain manifold more. So remember this image, who releases and lets go of all of these things, and now has an empty hand extended. And Peter's saying, look, there's nothing in my hand. What is it now? What shall become of us? We've left everything go. Our reputation is ruined. Our parents have cast us off. Our spouses are saying, you're out of your mind. Our children won't speak to us. We have no rights to our houses anymore. Our brothers and sisters with whom we grew up, they don't have anything of respect toward us anymore. Our hands are are empty. We have nothing because we've left it all. Christ says, notice this language, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time. There is, in other words, for the true follower of Christ in this life, a gaining of more. You say, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. You know, we're losing everything 
I get what he'll say in the life to come, but how is it possible that he's saying that in this life, in this present time, we gain more? Well, brethren, this is part of seeing God's kingdom. So, for instance, look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, and you'll get a spiritual sight, Lord willing, to what Christ is saying. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. And notice verse 46. Here's Christ teaching. It says in Matthew 12, 46, that while He yet talked to the people, behold, His mother and His brethren stood without, desiring to speak with Him. Then one said unto Him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. Now notice for a second, it's simple to understand, of course. Here's Mary and her children that she's had with Joseph saying, we want to speak with Jesus. He's my son. He's our brother. You know, bring him out. We need to talk with him. We don't know exactly how many children there were and perhaps cousins and others that may have been with him. But notice, it's related to Christ. Behold, verse 47, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. What is Christ's response? He answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? As so often in Christ's moments, the people must have been a bit put off. Like, are you kidding me? Who, why are you asking me who your mother is? You know, we know who your mother is. You know who your mother is. What are you talking about? Because their minds and our minds are so often fixed upon the fallen and earthly realm in which we live. But notice now, Christ is setting them up to open their understanding. Verse 49, He stretched forth His hand toward His disciples and said, Behold, My mother and My brethren. What's Christ saying? He's saying, of course, there is the bond and reality of physical, natural relationship. Right? Paul will say, you know, if, if we don't uh, care for our family, we're worse than heathens. Right? So in other words, grace doesn't destroy the bond that is natural to us, but it does supersede. It does speak more powerfully. It is, in other words, better than natural relations. So when Christ extends, and we don't know if He extends His hands to everyone there, or if His particular disciples who are following Him are on one side, and He points His hand over there and says, Look! Behold My mother and My brethren! For whosoever shall do the will of My Father which is in heaven, the same as My brother and sister and mother. Now this is one thing we know. However many people were in Mary and Joseph's family, they did not outnumber the people that were following Christ. And of course, this has been over and over and over again multiplied as history has advanced and more people have been gathered. What's Christ saying? He's saying, I see and I love those who are spiritually mine, those who are members of God's kingdom, I am no loser when my mother and family says, you're out of your mind. Because I have my brothers and sisters and mother in this life right now. This is my family. This is my love. This is the one that I'm going to live with and die with and rise again for. These are my family. And so you can then, from the eyes of Christ the King, start to realize why it is and how it is that Christ says, in this life, you will gain manifold more. Notice in Mark chapter 10, and there at verse 29. Mark chapter 10 and verse 29. It's a parallel passage. Peter in verse 28, Lo, we've left all that followed thee. Jesus answered and said, There's no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, inheritances, for my sake and the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time. Houses, 
brethren, sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands. Do you see that? In this life, it won't be a little bit, well, you've given up 10, you're going to get 11. You've given up a, a lot, you're going to get a little back. A hundredfold now in this time. But don't overlook it. This is not the prosperity heresy that plagues our world. He says, with persecutions. In other words, in this life, there is suffering. He's not painting this rosy-colored scene saying, leave all the misery and know nothing but smiles on your face forever. He's saying, you will be the gainer in this life. But let's be clear, you will suffer in this life. This shouldn't shock us. Christ is full on this. He's often speaking of these things. There is suffering. There is trial. Is it not stirring to read the lives of those who either were martyred or were well nigh unto being martyred, who endured, and yet in their prison cells and in their waste and suffering, they found brothers and sisters who sustained them. You read the life, for instance, of various missionaries, and you see how they're so close to one another, and they're in Papua New Guinea and other places that are familiar to us, in India, in the 1800s, and so on. And even today, as people are going into the Middle East with the Gospel that is their death warrant and certificate, and they come across fellow believers, and there's rejoicing and delight with one another. They've lost much. Doubtlessly, many of them have had parents say, you're out of your mind. You're going to the place that is going to be your death. Look at what you have. You have comforts galore. You have everything that you could want here. Why would you go there? Well, they're going because they're following Christ. And yet they find in their following Christ the provision of brothers and sisters that actually become far closer to them because of that far stronger bond which is Christ in this life. And yet you read, and many of them suffer death. So cannibals come and attack this house and kill husband and wife and children. And it's noted in uh, the person's uh, a diary. You know, the village two miles down was attacked this day. I've just gotten word. And my dear brother and sister have been beheaded and their bodies ravaged and eaten by the cannibals with persecutions. You read them about saying there's rumor that they're coming to our house and we're boarding up the place and we're here praying and singing praise to God and looking to Him, trusting Him. They're facing this. Guns are pulled out, put to people's heads saying, renounce Christ. These things happen. Persecutions come. You've heard of, of course, uh, from the Iron Curtain and things of that sort. The boy who's being beaten and the father brought out and say, all it'll take... For your son not to receive another lash, another fist, another blow, is for you to say Christ is not king. All you have to say, Dad, and you won't see your son bloodied again. All you have to do, Mom, and you won't see the the wincing of pain. You won't hear the shriek. You won't hear the thud, blow. All you have to do is say, Jesus Christ is not the Savior. And it'll stop. And what a story when the boy says, Father, don't you dare. I would not want to live knowing my Father has renounced Christ. What's the point? The point is twofold. One is, they see in this life, even with the persecutions, Christ is worthy. And they see that in this life, they are more than gainers because of the multitude of those whom Christ is bringing us to enjoy though it is with persecutions. But brethren, remember that Paul says, if there were no resurrection and life to come, we are of all men most foolish. So notice that we're gainers in this life with the multiplying of brothers and sisters in the Lord and the access to the gifts and graces of one another by God's grace. But notice that Christ says, and oh, what a consolation. And in the world to come, Life everlasting. If for this life alone we have lived, we are fools. But brethren, though in this life we receive more than we give up, we will suffer, we will face hardship, 
And soon enough, our bodies will perish unless Christ returns first. But that's not the end for the one who has forsaken all to follow Christ. Because the one who follows Christ, trusting in Him by His grace, will on the last day be raised up in the likeness of Christ, ever to rejoice in Him forever. There are seasons in this life when the Christian understandably wrestles and says, is it worth it? Psalm 73 is a whole psalm that is dealing with that difficulty. God, I'm looking and I'm saying, look at the prosperity of the wicked, and I've cleansed myself in vain. I'm getting nothing but beaten up here. Everything is falling out against me. What could Joseph have pointed to? I'm following your promise, and now my brethren are wanting to murder me. Instead, they sell me, and then I get sold into Egypt, and I'm striving to be faithful, and for a season you give me a breathing space only for this wicked woman falsely to accuse me, and now I'm in the dungeon. I can't see anything but difficulty. Often that will be our experience in this life. And yet, brethren... Were that the only experience in our life, we would still have sufficient reason to trust and rejoice in the Lord because there is that life everlasting that is guaranteed to come. And so, discern here one primary reason that many fail to follow Christ, whether they start out for a season only to give up, or whether they never start as many do. They fail to measure this life rightly, to measure what they're going to lose, and to measure what they're going to gain now, and to measure what they're going to gain hereafter. You know, you have miserly men and women who are willing to invest millions of their wealth because they know, as they've sort of seen the developments, that in the end they're going to be the winner in this life. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to invest our time, our energy, and so on to get this off the ground. And we know that in the end it's going to come back with some financial gain. Brethren, would that Christians had that kind of thought, I'm going to invest my life, I'm going to deny myself, because I know that God is faithful and that He is no liar that He will provide both in this life, though with persecutions, and in the life to come, everlasting life. May I ask, is this you? Are you so bothered by what you might, or what you are losing, what you might suffer, what you are suffering, and in your mind, the scale is tipping, and you're saying, I don't know if it's worth trusting and following Christ. I don't know if it's worth doing this. I think it might be better for me to take it into my own hands and work it out according to my own thoughts. At least I'll be in control. But see this for a moment. You won't be in control of anything but your ultimate undoing. When Christ proclaims His kingdom and says, I'm King. When Christ says, I'm the Savior. When Christ says, I'm the One who will do it for you. Though I lead you through these trials, yet trust Me, all that trust in the Lord shall be blessed. We say, but I'm wincing in the pain. Yes, I know. And Christ can say, so did I. I knew what it was to be in Gethsemane. I knew what it was to sweat drops of blood. I knew what it was for every single one of my disciples to deny me. I knew what it was to invest and do everything right. Do you realize that? There's no woman or man who can actually say, Lord, I've done everything right They're now doing everything wrong. But Christ can do that. He can literally say, never have I mistreated, never have I misspoken, never have I not done what was right to do. And yet as He did that, what did He get? The Jews denied Him. His own disciples and believing people fled from Him. And there He is, naked and shamed on the cross, beaten beyond recognition, crown of thorns on His head, nails piercing his wrists and hand, his feet, and ultimately being ridiculed by this thief and murderer and that thief and murderer, the chief priests and the unbelieving Jews ridiculing him, and off in the distance others wondering what will come. 
women wagging their heads, saying to their children, see what wicked men come to. Never follow these kinds of people. The Jews saying, if you're the Son of God, come off the cross and we'll believe you. What did Christ get for fulfilling and following His Father's will? Well, if you measure it by the scene of the cross, you see what He got. But brethren, if you measure it with the sight of heaven, you'll see He's actually the conqueror. And you'll see that actually securing our salvation. He's there staying on the cross, open to the shame, open to all of that repulsive work of Satan and sin, and ultimately open to bearing the righteous and beautiful and just wrath of God. Why? Because of His love for His beloved people. He persisted and continued. Think of this. Out of love. And now He calls His people who by grace have trusted in Him to deny everything as well. Why? Out of love. Because we love the King. We love the Savior. And as Paul says, I've counted everything but waste, excrement. It's worthless for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And unless that's true of you, the next trial that comes not might be, but will be your downfall. There's no withstanding the trial and overcoming the trial except by the way that Christ tells us that this is the way they overcame even by faith, trusting in Christ. The way of overcoming is by looking to Christ and trusting Him. Dear believer, as we close Look at your trial in all of its fullness and ugliness. It's snarling. It's snapping. It's scarring. It's pain. It's agony. Acknowledge it all. But then, whereas Satan will only tell you what you've lost and will never tell you what you've gained, turn your attention to Christ who promises that in this life, soon enough, you will see the privileges afforded to you as a believer But in the life to come, immeasurably so, you will see the great privileges afforded to those who by grace have trusted in Christ and enjoy forevermore the riches of His salvation. Would you stand with me for prayer? Let us pray.